Well, I invite you, if you'd like, to turn to John uh, chapter 19. We're going to look at uh, a larger chunk uh, this morning, verses uh, 31 down through the end of the chapter, and we'll pick up with John 20 next week, Sunday, Lord willing, tonight, and then also at our Good Friday service at 7 o'clock, we're going to look at uh, two of the sayings of Jesus from uh, the cross found in different passages tonight. Uh, Luke, well, they're both found in Luke 23 tonight. Father, forgive them. And then Good Friday, uh, today you'll be with me in paradise. So those two sayings of Jesus from the cross tonight and on Good Friday. But this morning on John 19, verses 31 to 42, uh, before we read it and look at it, let's pray together. Uh, Our Heavenly Father, we are uh, so thankful for your word, and we ask that you would be working powerfully in us through it. May your Holy Spirit enlighten our minds, uh, change our hearts, and incline our wills in light of uh, what we uh, see, read, and hear today. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. John 19, verse 31, since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, Since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. Beloved, the congregation of hope and everyone listening uh, this morning, uh, there's that uh, verse in verse 35 that I want to begin by drawing your attention to. He who saw and has borne witness, his testimony is true. He knows that he's telling the truth that you also may believe. Here's the apostle John standing at the foot of the cross as an eyewitness, reporting what he saw, moved by the Holy Spirit, obviously, to write this down and inscripturate this truth, not just for his sake and not just for the sake of the people around him, but for everybody's sake, our sake, believers even down to this day in 2023. He wants us to come to see and to come to believe that indeed Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Christ of God, and to understand and to catch that he actually did die. And so he records these details for us. And as he records these details, he pulls out some interesting points. And the first thing I want us to notice about what John writes is uh, the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders. 
just how hypocritical they were. And he records that in verse 31, since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Now, there's an element in here which is obedient. If you flip back to Deuteronomy 21, verse 22, we read, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So the Jews, the Sanhedrin, had just pushed Pilate to crucify Jesus. They were the ramming force to get Jesus on the cross. They were the ones that would not give up this endeavor to get Jesus killed and particularly to get him crucified by the Romans. And they got their way. They pushed Pilate to do this all according to the foreordained plan of God. And now that Jesus has been crucified, they want him along with the other bodies off their crosses. Time to speed up this process, time to get them dead, get them down, because it's the day of preparation. It's not just Sabbath the next day, but it's a high day. It's a great day. It's the Sabbath of Passover. So the Jews celebrated that on Saturday. Here we are. It's Friday, about three o'clock-ish or so. Sundown's coming at like six or seven o'clock. We've got three to four hours to get this fast forwarded here. And if we know anything about crucifixion, crucifixion would oftentimes take one to three days. People would be going up to take a breath and back down again, up and down. They'd do this until they were absolutely exhausted, until their thigh muscles couldn't do it anymore. And they knew this could go on till Saturday. This could go on maybe till Sunday. We want these bodies in the grave now. It's hard to overstate the horrible hypocrisy of this, though. Here they are crucifying the Messiah, crucifying the Son of God. And all they're concerned about is what? Oh, we don't want the land to be defiled. Just we want their bodies down. Get them off the cross. And J.C. Ryle commenting on this wrote, Let us mark the miserable scrupulosity that is sometimes compatible with the utmost deadness of conscience. Thus we see men making ado about a dead body remaining on the cross on the Sabbath at the very time when they had just murdered an innocent living person with the most flagrant injustice and monstrous cruelty. It is a specimen of straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Again, John doesn't outright name it and highlight it. Again, as is his style, he alludes to it. Can you imagine that they are concerned about defiling the land and they are completely unconcerned about the fact that they just gave this innocent person a mistrial, didn't even judge him properly, and he happens to be the son of God, and he's proven it his whole ministry. They're not concerned about that at all. It's called straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Now, Jesus, this may be... <laughs> Uh, just spoke to them, Matthew 23, verse 23, about this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a mat and swallowing a camel. This was their view of Sunday, and they were fastidious in their view of Sunday. 
Never mind the fact that we hate God and we crucify the Messiah. We've got to have our 24-hour period where we just don't do anything and the land's not going to be defiled. We've got a Sabbath day tomorrow. Let's get this fast-forwarded. Let's get this all fixed so that our Sundays can be perfect, our Sabbath can be perfect. That was their mindset. That was what they were busy doing. Never mind that our hearts are far from Christ or that we demonstrate no love to Him or to other people. We've got a 24-hour period in which we've got to get things absolutely perfect so we don't defile the land. Now, what is straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel? It's majoring in the minors and minoring in the majors. Did you catch in Matthew 23 that Jesus said, these you ought to have done? So he's saying, yeah, you should have tithed, mint, dill, and cumul, absolutely, but you shouldn't have neglected the weightier matters. In other words, Jesus is saying there are some things in the Christian life that are more important than others. They're weightier. And he describes them as justice and mercy and faithfulness. And so they should have done the tithing, etc. But they neglected the bigger things, beloved. And this is what hypocrisy did to the Jewish leaders. It's what it can do in our hearts as well, even down to this very day when we are trapped in the throes of hypocrisy. We can do it these ways. We might ask, what does it look like to strain out a gnat and swallow a camel? Well, giving to a cause that helps out the poor, but never spending any time helping them ourselves or ignoring them when they're right in front of us. Again, should we give to those people? Should we give to those ministries that help the poor? Yes. But are we doing it ourselves? Obsessing over which Bible translation we read, but filling up our conversations with gossip and about other people. Obsessing over which songs we want to sing, but never sharing the gospel with our coworker or neighbor. Spending hordes of time trying to get marriage laws changed, but failing to spend quality time with our husband or wife building our own marriages. Confronting people who use God's name as a swear word, but choking on the camel of bitterness and holding grudges and unforgiveness in our own hearts. Again, are the things that I mentioned at the beginning of that important? Sure. But what are the weightier matters? And the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders, they're right. Hey, we got to get these bodies down. They're right. That's in accordance with Deuteronomy 21. But what's the weightier matter? You just crucified the Son of God. Where's your repentance? Where's coming to your knees? Where's we have really messed up? Let the land be defiled, if that's what the case may be. But we're going to spend our night on our knees, pleading God's grace and mercy. That is a weightier matter. We're going to spend time going door to door, repenting, telling people we are sorry that we pushed for this. We were wrong. We were in sin. We are called to a full obedience, beloved, but obeying God in one area of our life does not atone for disobeying Him in the other areas of our lives. What does this look like to turn away from swallowing camels and straining out gnats? For some people, I've seen this in, in different lives, uh, they will stop serving on boards because they realize that there are bigger things to do for them. Namely, I've got to plug into relationships. Some people spend time preparing their hearts at night for the busyness of the next day. So when the busyness comes, they can attend to the smaller matters of making sure their kids have clothes on and have eaten breakfast and they're not going to die before they get out of the door without ignoring the weightier matters of showing love and patience and being a good witness even to our kids when they're 
running woefully behind schedule. There's just an infinite number of ways that we can work this into our lives. I don't know what it looks like for you. Probably don't know what it looks like for me. But the hypocrisy is ugly, and it's as ugly when it works in our life too. I want to serve secondly that Jesus' death is over and over again verified. He really died, beginning at verse 32. The soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it is born witness. His testimony is true. He knows that he's telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says they will look on him whom they have pierced. Now, this has been important ever since the day Jesus died. It's maybe even more important in our day today on account of a couple hundred years ago, there was this theory that came out, the swoon theory, uh, that Jesus did not die. He just sort of passed into a state of unconsciousness, and the resurrection was him sort of reviving, and he came back too. He was in a coma, as it were, and he came back too. So he didn't actually die for our sins and be resurrected to give us that glorious hope, but he just passed out and was revived, which would completely undo the gospel and would give us no hope at all. But what John makes very clear is that Jesus indeed is really dead, and he gives us at least four proofs of the fact that Christ died. The first proof is that the soldiers didn't break his legs. Now, the Jews go in and say, break their legs. Pilate, were given to understand, said, yep, that's fine, go ahead and do it. So these Roman soldiers walk out there with some sort of iron mallet or iron club, and was as customary, they would break the legs, shin, femur, whatever the case may be, but they would shatter the bone enough that you could no longer push up on the bone and relieve yourself and get another uh, breath to stay alive longer. And so they came to one criminal on one side of Jesus, saw that he was still alive, shattered his leg, came to the other one, broke his legs. But they stopped at Jesus and they noticed something. They'd noticed that he was dead, and if they had any doubt, what would they have done? Broken his legs. If there was any doubt at all in their minds, they would have broken his legs. In fact, even if he were already dead, we might have expected him to break his legs anyways. Just to be doubly sure, just to make sure, or maybe even if they felt like it, they could have broken Jesus' legs. But instead, they didn't. And it was even surprising to Pilate when Pilate heard that Jesus was dead. Mark 15, 44, Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus should have already died. This is very unusual. How, how does somebody die already being crucified only about six hours? Caught Pilate's attention. And we know because Jesus gave up his life. He decided when he was going to die, he voluntarily laid down his life. The other two next to him are still going at it. They're still, still trying to stay alive, still trying to catch their last breath. Their suffering is being prolonged until their legs are broken and death would have happened very quickly. So the soldiers broke the legs of the two criminals on either side of Jesus. When they came to him, they saw that he was dead. And that's our first proof. This was also the fulfillment of two passages of Scripture. Psalm 34, 20, he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. And then Exodus 12, 
verse 46, the Passover shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house and you shall not break any of its bones. You have the Passover lamb hanging over there and not one of his bones are broken in accordance with scripture. First proof, Jesus was really dead. The soldiers who had every reason to break his legs did not. Second proof, John's eyewitness account, account, he who saw it has borne witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth that you also may believe. John had no reason to make this up. John had every reason, along with the other disciples, maybe to hope that Jesus would not be crucified all the way and that he could stay alive. And John's telling us, look, I was standing there. I could smell the smells, hear the sounds, see the sights. And I'm telling you, it was one who was right there, standing next to Mary, that indeed Jesus died. I saw what took place. And if John saw any signs of life, he would be the one to record it and tell us that he saw signs of life. But he didn't. And he writes these things so that we might truly know that Jesus died. And John wants us to know it so that we will believe. The third proof is Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus spent time and money burying Jesus. Now, if Jesus was alive at all, when Joseph of Arimathea shows up and Nicodemus show up, they would not have expended all the effort it took to bury Jesus. They maybe would have called for a doctor. <laughs> Who knows what they would have done? But they would not have wrapped his body up in linen cloths and all these spices and taken all that time and put him in a new tomb that was Joseph of Arimathea's. They wouldn't have done that. They are a testament to the fact that Jesus is dead too. And then the fourth proof is that blood and water came out, verse 34. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. Now, if Jesus were even the slightest bit alive at this point, his body would have moved or reacted in some way to the piercing of his side, but it didn't. This piercing wound was substantial enough that later Thomas could put his hand in there and it was significant enough that blood and water could actually pour out. Not like a little bit of, you know, bleeding coming down, but significant. Oh, there's blood and ooh, there's a light color, like a clear, like a water-colored substance. Wow. So it was significant enough that that wound, that piercing, as many would recall, or as many have said, would actually have killed him as well. Because it would have been in his side or near enough to his heart and maybe even underneath his ribcage up. This was in fulfillment of Zechariah 12.10. They will look on him whom they have pierced. And it is ironic. A.W. Pink pulls out this irony. In the most striking way, the piercing of the Savior's side demonstrated the sovereignty of God. His absolute control over all his creatures and their every act. The soldier had received instructions to break the legs of Christ, but this he did not. Had he done so, scripture had been broken. The soldier had not received orders to pierce the Savior's side, yet he did this. <laughs> had he not, prophecy would have failed to be accomplished. The quotation is from Zechariah 12.10, and the reference is to a coming day when Israel shall look upon him whom they have pierced. They pierced him, though the act was performed by a Roman. What's he saying? Soldiers had every reason not to, or had every reason to break his legs. They didn't to fulfill scripture. They were never given the command to pierce him. And yet he did to fulfill scripture. What a, what a display of God's sovereignty. And again, the water and the blood coming out proof that Jesus is indeed dead. Now, there's been much ink spilled throughout church history on what is meant here by the blood 
and the water coming out. So first of all, there's disagreement on what happened. Some believe this water and blood are a miracle. It just spurted out. It was a, truly a miracle. Others believe it was just natural causes. Whatever Jesus went through, hypovolemic shock or whatever the case may be after being flogged and crucified, there was just a natural buildup of blood in the, oh, some of you would know the language. I've already forgotten it. The cavity between your chest and your lungs, the pleural cavity, and the heavier stuff would have settled to the bottom, the lighter stuff on top, which was clear. And so when that was pierced, the blood would come out first and then the lighter stuff, the clear looking water would come out secondly. So people debate, was this a miracle or was this indeed just natural causes? And you can do your own study on that. What does it mean though? And this is a question that some people spend a lot of time on. Some believe the water and the blood refer to baptism and the Lord's Supper. The blood being a reference to the Lord's Supper, the water being a reference to baptism. And I, I think you have to stretch things a bit to get there. Uh, again, we do have baptism and the Lord's Supper indeed. They're part of the new covenant. But what someone has noticed that really stood out to me, and others have noticed this as well, is that just a few verses after Zechariah 12.10, they look on him whom they have pierced. We read this in Zechariah 13, verse 1. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David. On the day we look at him whom we've pierced, there will be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. So on the day that we're looking on him whom we've pierced, there will be a fountain opened to provide cleansing from sin and uncleanness. And I can't help but think that Zechariah 13.1 is right in front of us. Blood and water poured out. We're forgiven. We're cleansed through the blood of Jesus Christ. And numerous hymn writers have actually picked up on this. Let me read you a few lines. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Rock of ages, top lady, let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and its power. And then Jesus keep me near the cross, there a precious fountain. Free to all, a healing stream flows from Calvary's mountain. So what does it mean? We could have a long debate about what this means, but it means, I think at least for sure this, Jesus is the Lamb of God who bled to take away our sins. He's the Lamb who sacrificed so that we can be forgiven. His blood has been spilled for our forgiveness. And let me drive this home because we say, of course, our sins are forgiven through Jesus' blood. They, they really are. And so here we have Jesus who's, undergone the wrath of God for our sins. He's given up his life. The, the life is the blood. He's offered his life. He's spilled his blood, literally his blood has been spilled in case we didn't get the symbolism. And now all of our sins are forgiven in him. And this is true of us as believers here this day. Now I know we say this theologically, but let me, let's just work this in your hearts. How many of us here today are sitting here thinking, even today, oh, if only there was forgiveness for this. If only I had forgiveness for X, Y, or Z. I know I'm forgiven of some sins. I know I'm forgiven of the ones that 
that I've told other people about, but how about the ones that will never come out of my mouth, I will never mention to other people, is there really forgiveness for them? Yes, there is. Jesus really bled, he really died. His blood was really spilled so that all of our sins could be forgiven, every single one of them. I hope you're sitting here saying that, that's incredible. I've offered no payment at all. I didn't spill any of my blood. I've paid God nothing. And he forgives all my sins and his son? Yes, he does. Every one of them. So I don't know what you're wrestling with this morning. I don't know what you might be wrestling with next year. But I do know this for sure, that all of our sins are forgiven through Jesus' spilled blood. A fountain has been opened. Uh, Spurgeon used to say this. He said, the mountaintops were covered in the days of Noah with the water, right? Our sins are the mountains and Jesus' blood is like the floodwaters. It goes all the way over the highest sin we have and covers over it so that everything is forgiven. And if there's any here today or people we know that are looking for forgiveness for somewhere to come so that you can own your sin and still have your sins paid for rather than condemned and mocked, look no further than Jesus. He bled for sinners. And if you want forgiveness, if you want a place where you know, look, I can come out as a sinner, we t- people want to come out today for all sorts of reasons. You can come out and say, look, I'm a sinner. <laughs> I fail. I break God's law. I don't love God. I don't love my neighbor as myself. I am a failure. You come to Jesus and all your sins are forgiven. Every single one of them. But apart from Jesus, there's no forgiveness. I can't, the Bible makes that so clear. If there's any who don't know Jesus, apart from Jesus, there is no forgiveness, none at all. There is payment that will have to be rendered and it will come from you and it will take forever and it will be miserable. It's called hell. So I urge you, you want forgiveness, awesome. Come to Jesus. Forgiveness is found in his blood and it's forgiveness full and free. Finally, let's look at the love for Jesus that was displayed by Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. So verse 38, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph of Arimathea, we know a few things about him. We don't see him before this episode or after it, but actually the four gospel writers talk about him. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew says, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. So he's rich, he's a disciple of Jesus. Mark tells us Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So what Joseph did took courage. He had to come out here now. He's part of the council. He was looking for the kingdom. And Luke tells us he was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. So the way he was not assenting to it is kind of sitting in the background because he was afraid of the Jews at this point, up to this point. I'm, I'm not going to ruffle too many feathers. I'm not going to come out and say, hey, I'm Jesus. I'm, I'm for Jesus. <laughs> but he's just going to sort of quietly in the background say, I'm not for this. Nope. And we know a little bit about Nicodemus. He had come to Jesus by night, remembered in John 3, 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. And then in John 7, verse 50, Nicodemus said to the council, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? So these two men are highly influential men. 
These two men have been sort of secret Jesus followers. Nicodemus heard Jesus teach on what it is to be born again, and no doubt he must have gone away and thought about that. (laughs) And Joseph of Arimathea wanted to know the kingdom of God. And he was a disciple of Jesus, but he was in the shadows. He didn't want to fully come out. So Joseph goes to ask for Jesus' body, goes to Pilate. We need the body. Pilate, yep. He takes the body down, presumably with the help of Nicodemus. That would be a a body is hard to handle when it's dead and completely limp and there's no help. No doubt Joseph would have had some help. Nicodemus is now here and catch this. It's during the day. We're about three, maybe four o'clock in the afternoon. Before he came by night, I don't want to be seen. Now in broad daylight for all to see, Nicodemus is helping to bury the Lord Jesus Christ. And he brought the 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. Joseph of Arimathea provided the tomb. So you've got these two highly influential people. Joseph, we know for sure, is rich. Nicodemus obviously has something to his name as well as far as material wealth. Joseph provides the tomb. He goes to Pilate. Nicodemus, you can almost hear them working this out. Hey, we got, we got to bury Jesus' body. Yep, I'll go grab the spices. We'll, we'll do this together. Let's tag team this. And they wrap Jesus up and they bury Jesus in Joseph's tomb, roll the stone over. They, they bury Jesus in the tomb. Now, they must have worked fairly fast and hard because they had about three hours to get that done. That's a lot of work. They were diligent. They were moving to get this all pulled off in about three to four hours. What's also of note is they would have both handled the body, which means what? What happens when you come into contact with dead people? You're unclean. They both would have handled this body for sure. Joseph of Arimathea would have handled the body. Now we're unclean. Now we, members of the Sanhedrin, at arguably the greatest feast of the year, and tomorrow being the, the, one of the best days, the Sabbath during a Passover, we're unclean. We can't celebrate it. We have to go through the cleansing process and do the Passover later by ourselves, as it were. They are setting themselves way outside the pale, beloved. This is a major move for Joseph and for Nicodemus. And this is exactly what genuine faith looks like. It's a coming forward to claim a crucified Savior as your own, regardless of how we're viewed by the rest of the world. Let me, let me just drive this home before we close just a little bit. There, there has to be a time, beloved, when our relationship with Jesus is no mere private endeavor. Is no mere, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I don't want people to know it. And what we see in Joseph and Nicodemus is, yeah, we're just not going to be afraid and living in fear of the Sanhedrin anymore. We're not going to be afraid of what other people around us think. There's our Lord, there's our Savior. We need to bury his body. We're going to go do it, even though we will be rendered unclean. Look, it's easy to profess faith in church on Sunday with a whole bunch of people's heads that are doing what? Yes. Yes. We believe too. We're on the same team. It's easy to profess our faith and it's easy to sing praise to Jesus on Sunday. Why? Because there's dozens of other voices if we're in a big church, hundreds of other voices, thousands of other voices that are right around us singing his praises too. 
But when we go out in the world, there's a big cost. There's the cost of how people view us. There's the cost of possibly losing our status. I don't know what it was like for Joseph and Nicodemus to go back to the Sanhedrin and to figure out what their life is going to look like now. But beloved, when we go out into the world, it's difficult. There's a cost to pay. You'll pay the cost. I will too. There's a cost. Hey, I'm a Christian. Oh, oh, bigot. Oh, you think you're better than everybody else, right? So many horrible things come into people's minds, most of which are inaccurate. There's a cost of following Jesus. These two were willing to undergo it. The passage teaches us that it's possible for the church as well to be so sick and so twisted that to believe in Jesus and live for him will actually set you at odds with the church. Now, keep in mind, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, was filled with Pharisees, filled with scribes. We've got a high priest involved there. You've got the, old, the leadership of the Old Testament church. And it was for fear of them that Joseph didn't want to come out. You got the Old Testament church doesn't even believe in Jesus. And I realize we're in the new covenant, but sometimes we may even discover that in the churches of which we're part, to be a committed follower of Christ will bring difficulty, not from the world, but from people in the church, because there's a lot of lost people in the church, in that church, and the things have become so corrupted. Let me just encourage us with this. We can't live, and we're not called to live, our lives as believers in the fear of men or women. For fear of the Jews, for fear of Americans, for fear of people who live in Pella, we're to be so committed to Christ that we just don't even really care. Whatever the, what's the cost going to be? It doesn't matter. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to serve him. I'm going to let the whole world know I serve him. Not obnoxiously. I'm just going to do what I'm called to do. And it will cost. There'll be a price to pay. But think about this, beloved. Nicodemus comes with, let's say, 75 pounds. Joseph has to give up his tomb. Oh, like, probably reserved for him, right? That would have been his tomb. There's a financial cost. There's a difficulty there. Sometimes it's good for us to be reminded of the cost that Jesus underwent that he counted when he came down here. There's a big cost. He counted the cost of saving us. He came out publicly to associate with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes and adulterers and murderers like me and you. Right? We're the adulterers. We're the murderers. We're the tax collectors, the thieves. Jesus counted that cost. How low did he have to go? All the way down to our level. He associated with us. He was treated on the cross like we deserve to be treated. Not just by his father, but even by the Romans and the Jews. If people really knew just how wicked and ugly and black our hearts are on the inside by nature, what would they do with us? They would crucify us. We would crucify ourselves. Beloved, that's how low Jesus came. He counted that cost. He bore the cost of associating with us. That's just got to warm our hearts. How close will Jesus come to me? How much does he love me? How near by my side will he come if he looks despicable because he associates himself with me? He will come all the way. This is what he'll do. 
He'll come and stand in our place and say, I want you to be treated like you're perfectly righteous. Get out of this room. I'm going to bear all your shame by myself. But that has got to change. It just will change. It ought to make our hearts sing, number one. But the second thing is, when we go out into the world, there is one thing that we are not going to give up, one person that we are not going to deny, one person that we are going to cling to no matter what it costs, Jesus. I serve him. I exist for him. Let me tell you about his great love for me. Let me tell you about all that he would do to stoop down to save me. I can't deny him. I can't live without him. I'm not going to live in the fear of anybody else. I'm going to live in reverence and awe of him and serve him my whole life. Let's pray.